Welcome, this is Jessica Ortner and our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going on a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment. Because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. Hello and welcome to episode 16. I am so happy that you are with us. This is going to be an incredible show. I loved getting the chance to interview Dr. Mike Doe. So Dr. Mike is on every TV show you can imagine. He's the co-host of TLC's Freaky Eaters and My 600 Pound Life Reunion. He's done VH1's Couples Therapy. He's on Dr. Oz a lot. He's one of his miracle workers. And he's appeared on Rachel Ray, Wendy Williams, Anderson, Bethany, The Talk. You get the point. He's all over the place. He's a big deal. And so humble and amazing. The great thing about doing this interview is that Someone suggested his work to me, and I read his book, and I loved it, and then I went on his website, and I watched a bunch of his videos and fell in love with him, and then I saw him on all these different TV shows, and especially the reality shows, what's so great about Dr. Mike is that he's like this voice of reason. Every time he says something, I want to yell hallelujah after it. I felt the same when I did this interview with him a lot of eye-opening thoughts and and ideas. The talk today is all about brain fog. Now we're gonna talk in the interview what brain fog is, but I think most of us have experienced that. You know, you're just foggy. Things aren't coming, that feeling lethargic. So if you experience brain fog regularly or you have moments of it and you wanna find a way out, then take notes, enjoy this. Now I have another major piece of life like information oh, i always get so nervous that i need to share with you because i recorded this interview and i let something slip and i didn't realize it until afterwards but i was telling a story and i said that i was on a hike with my fiance so i have to tell you guys that i'm engaged and i'm very happy. Uh, Not something that I was hiding, but I wanted to take a few weeks to be able to call all my friends and family individually and to let them know the good news and everyone is thrilled. Nick is just over the moon. And in maybe the next episode or one of these episodes, I'll tell you more about the story of how it all happened. But in the meantime, if you want to go on Facebook, I am going to post a picture of the moment. And uh, with the podcast, make sure you subscribe uh, and I'll give you some more exciting details. So for now, we're talking about brain fog. So enjoy this interview. Let me know what you think. If you like it, connect with me on Facebook, leave a review on iTunes. It's always really appreciated. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being with us. I just started the recording, um, but I wanted to start off by saying welcome to the Hay House family. I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, but my brother did, um, and he said he loved you, and and hopefully next time we get to connect in person. 
I would love that. Yeah, I actually just emailed your brother because I think he's going to be part of my Hay House University course. I, I mean, I just cannot tell you how happy I am. This is like the, the most amazing company on the face of the planet, I think, maybe. <laughs> I, I think so, too. I love it. Everybody asks me what it's like behind the scenes, like hoping to get some gossip. And I'm like, it's lovely. It, it really is. It really is. It's like a culture of helping and kindness. It's so strange. Yeah, absolutely. And what was so great, so I was talking to Rochelle, who's our, our publicist with Hay House, yeah. and she told me about you and your book, and I have no idea how, I wasn't even aware of this before, but I, I'm on chapter 12 of your book, just finished chapter 12. I have been watching like every video on um, Ask Dr. Mike on your website, <laughs> and you have, so, there's so much great stuff online. I think you're like the most likable person online. Oh, um, you're such a sweetheart. Like just such a such a voice of reason and I'm so excited that you're that you're with us. So, I want to talk about Brain Fog, this new book, The Brain Fog Fix. Yeah. Uh because I think, you know, we've definitely all been there. But what's so funny is that a few weeks ago, I was on a hike with my fiance and we just moved to Central California and the moment I got here, I had like the worst allergies. They're they're better now. But I was on a hike with him and I said to him, oh, I have the worst brain fog. And he is from Argentina. He moved to the States about two and a half years ago. So sometimes there's certain sayings that he doesn't know. And he goes, right. what's, what's, what's brain fog? <laughs> and I was like, that's so – I've never had to explain it. And so yep. I said – I had to stop and think about it. And I said, it's when you have trouble thinking clearly and all your senses seem a little bit dulled. Uh, that was what I – that's the way I was describing it. But I want to know from you, how do you define or describe something like brain fog? Yeah, well, first of all, I love your example uh, because while we Americans tend to have more brain fog than anybody else, Jessica, <laughs> you know, so, you know, I, I actually just got off the phone about an hour ago. Here's my little story um, with a, a very busy television producer who works on a ton of TV shows you've all heard of. And he said, you know, I he was talking to me about something a dating show, you know, and, and he said, but I, I, I cannot wait to read your book and I need it, you know, because I'm so stressed out. And, and I think that, you know, your story with your fiance and, and, you know, this producer that I just talked to Brent, Americans are eating things, living our lifestyles where we're, you know, how long our commutes have gotten, how inactive we've become, uh, how, how disconnected and lonely we are. You know, Americans are now more likely to live alone than in any other time in history. Our marriages aren't lasting as long. So it, it's, it's interesting that it tends to be a, a very, unfortunately, a very American phenomenon. And I would describe it as, I think the best way to describe it is you just don't feel like yourself, right? And when people say, I don't, feel like myself, you know that you felt better and there's nothing major wrong. You know, you don't, you don't have any, uh, there's not any, you know, you, you don't have a cold, you, you don't have some uh, major infection that requires medical care. Maybe you've actually seen your, your primary care or even spe specialist to rule stuff out, but you just don't feel like yourself. You don't feel joy. You don't feel, you're feeling tired all the time. Uh, you, maybe you have a little bit of ADHD. Maybe you have a little bit of depression, a little bit of insomnia. And it's sort of this mixed bag, right? Where we just don't feel like ourselves, but we also have the, we have the, uh, we have that, that experience where we know, I know I could be feeling better, but, but what, what is it that I could be doing? Right? So I think that's, that's what brain fog is. 
What's great about your book is you have so many different solutions, but they're across so many different areas of our life. So you talk about nutrition, you also talk about our personal life. And I want to talk, I want to start just by talking about nutrition, because I, I think a lot of times when people start to look at their nutrition, it's because they either have a health problem or they're looking to lose weight, but not yeah. so much because they're having an emotional struggle. You don't usually hear someone say, I'm having a really emotionally hard time in my relationship, so I'm going to change the way that I eat. Right. I, and, and I really believe that that emotions are are the the number one reason why people eat poorly. Uh, you know, we want to self medicate, and and if we're lonely, if we're tired, if we're if we're angry, all of these things can make us want to reach for those those blood sugar spiking foods. Which, by the way, you know, from a neurochemical point of view, flour and sugar release serotonin, just like the street drug ecstasy releases serotonin in the brain, and then fatty fried foods and and unhealthy fats release dopamine in the brain, just like the way cocaine releases dopamine in the brain. So, you know, I, I think that so many of us, we turn to food. I, I myself, you uh, still from time to time struggle with it. I used to be a food addict in, in high school and in early college. I mean, I was drinking eight to 10 regular sodas a day, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it is, isn't that insane that so that that is actually a, a pretty common story. And what's, what's fascinating about long-term brain health um, you know, as we're living longer and longer, I, I compare the brain to a Ferrari. You know, it's it's the most advanced organ that we have. So it's great if you want to, you know, lose weight. And I think a lot of people make that connection between, oh, well, if I if I don't want to get diabetes or I don't want to lose weight, then I need to eat a little bit better. But I don't I don't think people understand just how much the food you eat every day either sets you up for brain fog. And, you know, minor brain fog now, scatterbrained, and then down in, in and also mommy brain uh, if, you're, if you're a woman. And then later down the road, senior moments, which can turn into dementia and even Alzheimer's. You know, the things that we are eating every day in the American diet, the high omega-6 pro-inflammatory factory farmed meat products, dairy products, eggs, and then also, comb- and, and then also uh, high... Uh, omega six soybean oil, which go read. You know most foods in in processed foods, and also like mayonnaise and and marinara sauces. A lot of these store bought varieties have soybean oil, and then they also all these processed foods we combine with blood sugar spiking and pro inflammatory sugar and flour, and all of those things we know are absolutely strongly associated with brain fog, dementia, Alzheimer's, depression, anxiety. And then we also know that eating an anti-inflammatory diet um, that is high in phytonutrients, antioxidants, and also high uh, in omega-3s. So whether you're a vegetarian and eat my omega-3 nut source, which is walnuts, or you're a pescatarian uh, and you eat my couple of my favorite omega-3 fish like farm-raised rainbow trout or wild salmon, or if you're a meat eater and then you, you read in my book the studies on how much, uh, you know, for example, a, che- a traditional American cheeseburger, the omega-6 to 3 ratio is about 15 to 1. But if you buy grass-fed organic beef, it that, that ratio drops down to 1.5 to 1, which is a much better anti-inflammatory state for your brain. You learn how to make these simple swaps and switches so that you can not only lose weight in the short term, but, you know, fast forward, 
five, 10, 20, 50 years, you can also maintain your brain health and feel clear and, and vital and joyous through the, for, for your whole life. Right. Because what I see happening is that we have an emotion, so we turn to food. But then that very same food, after we go down from that high, you know, we have that initial sugar high, then we crash and we're feeling even worse emotion. So, you know, we're really in this cycle of, of this fog and all of these emotions. So if we want to change our lives, besides the physical benefits, the emotional benefits of changing our diet and the benefits on our brain, I think it's important to highlight that because when we need to make these changes, I think we need to be clear on what is motivating us because it is really about changing these habits. Big time. I mean that that roller coaster. I mean I've been there. You know we fall into that food coma, and then and then we feel worse, and then we feel, and then you want to sit on the couch, and you don't want to exercise, right? So it tends to be that downward spiral. So you're absolutely right. Right. So I definitely recommend that everyone grab your book because you have a lot of great recipes in here as well that I that I've been enjoying. But I want to move to something that I was really surprised to read about. So I understand the power of nutrition. What I didn't realize. It has become such a big problem and is impacting brain fog is loneliness. How has loneliness impacted our culture and how does it impact our brain? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think obviously people know, oh, if I'm lonely, I'll probably I'll probably be more uh, likely to be diagnosed with something that's more psychological, like depression. But we also now know that loneliness isn't just, you know, because we are social creatures, human beings require, it's not an optional uh, part of our lives. We require social connection. We require love. And I would say that love is the most important, vital, meaningful part of the human experience, right? And and we know that, for example, if you say you're lonely, you're twice as likely to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And and so we look at these American trends, you know, we look at the fact that we're living alone more and more. We look at the the number of families living uh, with a significant other and a child is, is, you know, those rates are, are going way down. And even the number of friends, I thought it was really interesting that even the amount of friends Americans have, and you know, the, the, the paradox here, we have more and more virtual friends. You know, somebody can have like, oh, I have 5,000 Facebook friends. And then you see that person never going out to dinner at all. And they sit at home by themselves every night, right? That, there's irony there. Um, that, that the Americans used to have an average of three confidants or close friends, people that could tell anything to. But in the 2000s, that number dipped to two. And, you know, I, I always think about the Golden Girls when I think about that number three, right? Mm-hmm. So you had you had, you had uh, Dorothy and she had Ma, Blanche, and, um, and Rose, right? So you think about how that used to be the norm. We had three really close friends. And now we have, a, on average, two. And 25% of Americans now say that they don't have any right? So that's, that's actually very dangerous for the brain. Um, and, and for all of these people also looking at the studies for people, I, I believe that you can use social media. The irony is you have to look at, is your social media use actually making you antisocial? There's a way to use social media to learn, to get inspired, to connect to people that you love, or to even meet new people. If you need to you know, meet new people too, whether it's for friendship or, or for dating um, or for love. Um, 
there's a way to use technology, but don't overuse it, right? So it's good to drink two cups or three cups of coffee a day, but you don't want to drink 56 cups of coffee a day. So the person that's that's sitting alone just perusing Facebook and Instagram and Twitter all day long without actually going out and putting down their phone to enjoy a meal with a friend is actually putting their brain at risk. Right. I think being an adult and then having to say to yourself, okay, I need to go make some new friends, you almost feel like a kid again. It could feel a bit intimidating. So what advice do you have for someone that is hearing this and reflecting on their life and going, actually, I only have one close person. I really want to have more people in my life. What are some steps that they can take? Yeah, one of the things that's so great for the brain is novelty. And, And if you do a new activity. We know that that's one of the best things you can do to grow new brain cells and connections, which is this phenomenon called neurogenesis, right? It keeps the brain really healthy. So one of the best ways to 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 actually make new friends is to do new activities. You know, I, I suggest the, the website uh, meetup.com, you know, to find people who are interested in, oh, I'm going to join a hiking group. Um, I personally, I love this app called ClassPass where I pay 99 bucks a month and I can only go to each gym. I, you know, I go to yoga, I go to spinning, I go, you know, I go to all these different workouts, but I can only go to each place three times per month. And I can't tell you how many times I'll go to like different places in my area and I'll run into a friend and then I have a conversation and, and oh, I haven't seen you in two years. How are you? Right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm using novelty to actually cast a wider net in my social, in my social life. Okay. Um, so I would just say that you have to just really engage yourself cast a wider net and 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 really engage in those activities and and you know even if it's intimidating and you're going to walk into a place a workout you've never been before a place of worship you you haven't been to in a long time or trying someplace new or going to some class you feel silly signing up for at a library or the learning annex or something uh, or you know of course the I can do it weekends that, that Hay House authors uh, put together um, you really have to just put yourself in those situations because you never know who you're going to find and and you never know who you're going to meet or reconnect with. Right. What are your thoughts around the comfort zone and courage? So what I mean by this is if we know that we want to put ourselves out there more to meet more people, we know it's going to help our brain. But yet we have our routine. We have what's comfortable and, and similar, which could be staying at home on our computer. And now we're saying to ourselves, okay, I'm going to step out of my comfort zone. I'm going to walk into a class where I don't know anyone how can we kind of get ourselves in a position where we feel more comfortable with it or at least more comfortable with the uncertainty of it? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Jessica. And, and I, this sort of reminds me, I, it's probably at first going to seem really unrelated. Um, when I first started doing talk shows, um, people would say, gosh, you look so cool and calm and collected and literally I remember the very first time I my first national talk show was Rachel Ray and I was so nervous I was so nervous and people said wow you were such a natural and I smiled and I and I and I and I think I you know watching it back I'm like oh I actually I did actually sound like I was well spoken but you have to know that internally what was going on for me was anxiety was this feeling of panic because I was outside of my comfort zone. I was so nervous to meet her for the first time. And, and, and what's, but that illustrates something that I, that I recommend that's been clinically uh, proven, which is 
it's not so much, you know, how do I extinguish the feelings of anxiety when I have to step out, out of my comfort zone? The trick is not so much how do you rid yourself and become this perfect person who can walk into any situation without anxiety. I don't, I don't think that that's the end goal. I don't think that's realistic. I mean, it's great to, to reduce anxiety, but if you do something new, you're always going to have a little bit of it. So I think the first step is to normalize some of that for yourself. But then I think the second part of that equation is more importantly, no matter what you're feeling, if you know something is going to be good for you and it may open up the chance for you to learn something new or, or to be inspired or to meet new people, you put a half smile on your face and you do it anyway, right? It's that, yes. it's, it's that mantra, fake it till you make it. And, and you know, one of the spiritual exercises in my book that's taken from the Buddhist tradition that I, that I recommend to people, it's to put a half smile on your face in the most uncomfortable and unpleasant situations of your life. Now, neurochemically, there's there's two really fun studies. One was this study of women getting Botox so they couldn't frown anymore. And the other was a study of people who had to put a pencil in their mouth, so they were actually forcing their mouth into a smile. And they had no idea the study was had to do with mood. But then later, when they were asked to assess their mood, they you know, it was surprised their mood went up. So if we actually embody with a half smile on our face and, and with, you know, by, by putting, you know, by walking in and making eye contact with people, it doesn't how, how anxious you may feel, uh, inside when you step out of that comfort zone. It's more about what you do and the choices you make every single day of your life. I love that. And I'm so happy you shared that story because once I started to realize that my mentors and people who were, already speaking on stage or had already come out with a book when I connected with different authors and found out that they were all scared too. It made me feel so much better because <laughs> the problem is when we judge the way that we feel. The right. fear isn't the problem. The, the right. problem is when we go, oh my God, I can't, what is wrong with me? I have this right. fear. It must mean that I shouldn't try. I, I agree. Do you ever see that? Um, there's this great clip of Tony Robbins on stage and he, he, he has somebody on the audience he says, you act like my fear, right? And I want you to pull me as hard as you can. And so one, you know, Tony Robbins is, is himself and the other person represents fear. And he's like, now I want you to pull as hard as you can this way and I'm going to try to go this way, right? And so he's trying to work against his fear and he doesn't get anywhere. And then he says, okay, now I'm going to do something different. He's like, now I want you to go anywhere, any, any which way you want to go. And he just goes with his fear. And I thought that was a really great visual metaphor for instead of working against your fear and your hesitation, you can just go with your fear. Isn't that so cool? I love that. I saw him do that before and it's hysterical. And then I think they put on some kind of tango music or some, like, <laughs> right. some music at the end and he begins to dance with the person. Right. Uh, so I want to talk about social media for a second. I yeah. have an app on my computer called self-control yep. and I use it every day and I put it on when I start working for like four hours yeah. and I also find it hysterical that I need an app that's called self-control to avoid right. me from going on social media <laughs> why I work. Right. Why is it that I depend on this app? What, why is social media so addictive and what can we do about it? 
Well, I, I compare social media use to a gambling addict who's sitting at a slot machine smoking cigarettes day in and day out. You know, my, my mom and stepdad actually retired in Vegas, even though they don't like to gamble <laughs> or smoke. Um, but they they actually love the shows. My mom loves Cirque du Soleil and Celine Dion, so she's very happy there. <laughs> but uh, but what's really funny is you you know I go into these these casinos and I see these these people sitting there drinking and smoking, and they're just and they sit there all day long, and they're just they're gazing at this video screen, waiting for those little bells and whistles. And all of these little bells and whistles are, are releasing little hits of dopamine. And people who, de- who design slot machines are savvy enough, and they know brain chemistry well enough to know that if you just give people a little bit of dopamine, right, these little hits, and every five times, you may not win a jackpot, but you may win like five bucks, right? Mm-hmm. And, and those cherries line up or whatever that game is, that video poker, whatever you're playing, and all of these bells and the whistles and the sounds and everything that they're doing, and of course, they serve you free cocktails, which, you know, makes you, may, feeds all that addictive behavior, and of course, you're to smoke in casinos, which feeds it even more. Um, but it's all these little hits of dopamine. So what's interesting is that every time somebody likes something on Facebook, every time you have a push notification on your phone and you're in the middle of a call and you see a, a, a blinking red light, or you're, you, know, you have a bunch of browsers open, which is why you use that great that app self-control on your computer, uh, you, know, you see uh, something uh, flashing in, in the background, which means you have like a new message or a new Facebook like, or you know somebody's messaging you or private messaging you, whatever it is. Those all release little tiny hits of dopamine that keep you coming back. But what what it does is that short term reward, much like the person who spends their whole life in a casino, drinking, smoking, and playing slot machines for ten hours a day. That person isn't ever going to get the big rush of dopamine or the steady rush of dopamine that comes with long-term thinking and planning and building something. And I bet sometimes, Jessica, when you sit on your computer for four hours, I bet some days you actually are getting very little dopamine. You're getting just a small little dose. But I bet when you actually finish a project at the end of the week or the end of the month and you turn something in, you then get this this guarantee, instead of somebody who doesn't get a guaranteed rush, right? It's like a short-term thrill of that little slot machine. You're getting this really big sustainable and also this predictable rush of dopamine in your brain. So yes. we have to look at it from this, from this, sh- do I want a short-term band-aid to something that's going to make me feel a little, you know, a little bit better in the moment by that, you know, that other Facebook light or like, or procrastinating with Facebook when I should be working on this, this article that I'm writing or this spreadsheet that I'm doing, or do we want to just, give ourselves that bigger, more predictable, long-term hit of feel-good chemicals in the brain. So you said earlier that like like coffee, you know, some coffee is good, too much coffee is not. It applies to social media. So how much is an appropriate amount and when do we know that we have a problem and we need to make a change? I think you just have to ask yourself. I mean, obviously, if you're spending hours a day on, on social media, that that is, that is not a good thing. So I would ask yourself uh, one thing. Much like the study that they recently, recently conducted uh, with people going on social media and monitoring their mood before, during, and after, ask yourself the question, do I feel better or worse about myself after I've gone on social media? They found it that in the study at the University of Michigan that people, a lot of them felt worse because what is social media? 
People use filters. People are posting. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't po- post the mundane. They post the Bora Bora photo of like <laughs> this amazing. You know, they're on the beach and they and they've been working out and they're tan and they use a filter and they're at you know and they're at this five star resort. And then of course you look at that and you and you think, wow, my life is so boring. <laughs> you know, like I don't ever get to do something like that. I don't look that good. But little do you know that you know they're using a filter and you know they've been working out and getting spa treatments all day. But you know they're going to go back to their regular lives too, and they're not going to always look that stress-free or great. They're going to they're gonna start to get those wrinkles again too at some point. So I, I think if you ask yourself that question and you find yourself saying, wow, I actually feel a little worse about myself. I feel a little envious towards other people's lives or I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting agitated. I think there's a lot of times when people go on social media, you know, one of the reasons why I love Hay House is all of Hay House's uh, social media sites and authors. Every time I go on one of their sites, I, I learn something that inspires me, that touches me. You know, it's, it, a lot of times it's like a, a little picture with like one quote that you can like stitch around your heart. And that probably <laughs> makes you feel better. But going on Instagram to Facebook stalk your ex, that's probably going to make you feel worse. So right. I just have to ask yourself that question. I love that. I was thinking about it this morning because it was like seven o'clock in the morning and I was on Instagram and I was like, this doesn't make me feel good. Like it, it doesn't, I lose focus when I do yeah. that. And for a while, I had a I had this rule that I wouldn't have my phone in my bedroom. Mm. And I haven't had my phone in my bedroom and then somehow you know when you move to a new house that you just I don't know somehow my phone ended up back in my bedroom. <laughs> right. And I think I need to kick it back out again because w- when you start your day looking at social media and seeing what everybody else is doing, you immediately start with this kind of feeling of being behind. That's right. Or at least yeah. I do. So yeah. I um, that's yeah, that's really helpful. So if we want to shift our relationship with social media, do you have any tips? Should we do some kind of detox or limit it in some way? Yeah. So, you know, in the, in the second week of my program, the second of the three weeks, um, the first week is the seven day mood revolution, which focuses mostly on diet and cognitive behavioral thought patterns. And in the second week, which is the seven day energy revolution, one of the things that I recommend is you find three hours a day where you don't have any media use. So for me, one of those hours, I can't tell you the the experience I have when I leave my phone behind and take a one hour walk with my dog. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so funny. It's, it's, it sounds so simple, but it's actually become so rare that we are, that we disengage completely. Like nobody can reach us. There's no bell. There's no, there's no text message alert. There's no, there's no TV. There's no email. And imagine if every single one of us took three hours every day, it could be three, you know, an hour in the morning, hour in the afternoon, hour at night, where you are just present with whatever it is you're doing, with the people around you, with nature, with your animals, with, with pe- making, you know, I can't tell you how many times I, I'll be in line at Starbucks and you see how many people don't even make eye contact because they're texting while they're ordering. And he, and even that I feel like has the power to transform the world and change the world because I, I think that does something. You know, as human beings, when we don't make eye contact, we become more and more isolated. And that also makes people feel like they're unimportant. And 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 the the simple gesture of eye contact and a smile, even when you're doing something as simple as ordering a cup of coffee, can make somebody feel connected. And it says to them something, right? It, it, the, the mantra there and the message you're communicating is, you matter, right? You matter. 
It doesn't matter if, 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 if you're serving me coffee. It doesn't matter if I don't really know you. It doesn't matter if I never see you again and I never come in contact with you again in this, on this planet. You matter, right? We're actually giving people that, that, that message. So I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's one way where you know, peace and peace and love uh, are, you know, peace and love start with these really small gestures, you yeah. know, and, and they sort of, it's sort of like the pebble dropping in a lake. And then you see those ripples start to just grow until all of a sudden this one little pebble dropping in that ripple has expanded, you know, for, for, for a hundred feet. Uh, and I, and I think that's, that's how these little shifts can, can, um, how they can transform our world and, and also our brains. Yeah. I remember traveling in China for, I, I traveled for three weeks there and you, there's Twitter's banned. Yeah. Facebook's definitely banned. And then I think Twitter is banned too. So I had no social media and my phone wasn't even working there. And I remember standing in line and I just immediately went to grab my phone right. and then just thinking to myself, can I just, no, no, I'm just going to stand in line. Yeah. I can just stand here. Yeah. Um, there's, there's something so important about being in the present moment. And I think especially if we're feeling stuck in our life and we're looking for ideas and inspiration, it's hard for that inspiration to reach us when we're so distracted. I, I agree. You know, it's the, it's that power of, of mindfulness, you know, have you ever, it's, it's so funny. I, I, I think we go on that automatic pilot like you did, you know, reaching for your phone, which I do all the time as well. But it's also that moment. Have you ever had that moment where you're, you're reading um, you're reading a book and you actually get to the end of a paragraph and you realize that even though your eyes were scanning words, you actually yeah. weren't reading because, <laughs> yeah. and then you have to go back. And it's like, that's so funny. Like I was actually engaging and I was actually moving my eyes across the page, but I actually wasn't even paying attention. And I wasn't even aware enough that when it started happening that I stopped myself. <laughs> I just, you know, it's like my eyes just kept going to the end of the paragraph or sometimes the end of the page. And you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe I didn't actually read that because we become so mindless, right? Which is the opposite of, of mindfulness. So mindfulness, you know, I talk a lot about uh, the power and the, and the studies of, of mindfulness meditation because, you know, one of the, one of the modalities that I'm trained in is, is, is uh, not only mindfulness meditation, but mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which is extremely effective in boosting mood and helping people to feel better and more connected and also more peaceful. So, you know, mindfulness defined is paying attention on purpose to the present moment. You know, it's such a simple, you know, when people, somebody asked me, you know, my uh, somebody, a couple of people were like, "Oh, I've I saw this thing called mindfulness on 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 new on the news the other day. It was like it was it was like it was some weird <laughs> thing, right? It's like no, mindfulness is actually quite simple. It's just paying attention on purpose to the present moment. And if we did that just a little bit more in our lives, whether you're doing it within a sitting meditation practice or you're actually doing it within your life, like you were actually waiting in line mindfully, or when I walk my dog without my phone, I am t actually taking a mindful walk. And mm. I can actually, you know, it's, it's so funny. Have you, have, I, in LA, we drive all the time and you, you know, you're in central California and I don't know how much you drive or walk, but it's so funny. Have you also had that experience, Jessica, where you walk down a street that you usually just have driven down and all of a sudden you, you say, Oh my gosh, I never noticed that store was there. Oh, oh, I, you know, and it's like, oh, this stuff was there all the time. You were just so distracted or just not paying attention that you didn't notice. So in a lot of ways, mindfulness is sort of like walking down a street that you've only driven down, right? It's actually paying attention to the way the, 
the the fall air feels on your cheek while you're walking or the birds that are that are chirping around you or that beautiful tree that was actually on your street corner that you never even noticed was there and it's like 100 feet tall and you're like oh, I never actually noticed that tree there before right and and it, it actually has a power to turn off the parts of the mind that tend to be future oriented which is correlated with anxious thought with insomnia and all of these all of these things that sort of rob us from from peace and joy in our daily lives. Right. And this is, so this is the problem about a mindful walk is that people hear about it and they go, oh, that sounds like a cute idea. But because it's so simple, they don't do it because we live in a culture where we have been raised to believe that if it isn't hard, it isn't worth, worth it. That's right. And that's why it's so important to hear this over and over again and actually to really take a moment to go, yeah, that hour walk without my phone, this is essential to my emotional health, to my brain, to my body, to my spirituality. You're, you're so right. I think I think the other thing is not only if it's not big, it doesn't make a difference because of our big American thinking. Or the other thing is if it doesn't come in an orange bottle, it doesn't really work, right? right. <laughs> so I think you take the, these, these new American mindsets and then, you know, looking at some of these studies, you know, for example, um, one of the reasons why I have these 12-minute meditations in my book, it's, I didn't just pull the number 12 out of thin air. Because I decided that there was, you know, that's how long people should be meditating. I actually looked for studies, and in brain scans with just 12 minutes a day of daily practice, you start to see positive changes in the brain. And then you, and then uh, by the same token, for people experiencing memory loss, when they just did 12 minutes a, a day of meditation, their memory started to improve in weeks, not years. And I think this is a great antidote because as much as I love eat, pray, love. And as much as I would love to also go live in an ashram in India and then go eat food in Italy and then go to Indonesia and spend a year of my life exploring the world, I, I just don't have the, to, to be frank, I don't have the money or the time, <laughs> you know, and I, and I think that so many people like, you know, like this producer who is feeling really frantic and, and, and he said, gosh, I just feel like TV producers, we're just, we're just wired for brain fog. And, and I, you know, I said to him, I think it's, I think it's information that you need to inject these little, whether it's a 12 minute meditation into your daily life, uh, and, and just find, and what, one of the, one of the little tricks that I do is I set my, I turn my ringer off on my iPhone, but then I set my timer for 12 minutes minutes and I do a meditation. You know, I actually, you know, if you don't know how to meditate, I can guide you through one of those 12 minute meditations. My website, I have a free one you can download or you, you know, there's a lot of great teachers you can find out there. And, and then what you do is you find these little, these little, these little tiny thing, pieces of your life where you can infuse peace. Um, also in terms of exercise, I, I thought it was really interesting, you know, cause one of the things I do in, in that seven, uh, the seven day energy revolution in the brain fog fix is I recommend 44 minutes a day of exercise in one or two sessions. So I also know a lot of very busy single moms who I've treated who say, I don't, I just don't have time to work out. I don't have time to get to yoga class. I work full time and then I have three kids. I'm a single mom, but I know that every person probably can find 22 minutes a day at lunch and 22 minutes after dinner to at the very least take a brisk walk, right? So in, in the studies, you know, there was a study at Duke that showed that exercise really outperformed prescription antidepressants for boosting mood in terms of it having the benefits last if you do it all the time. And the, and the people in these studies, and, and another really famous study that talked about mood improvement, these people weren't going to boot camps. 
they weren't they weren't going to these Bikram yoga classes. I think don't get me wrong. I go to a boot, I go to a boot camp twice a week, and I think B, I love Bikram. But if you don't have time for that, or you're not there yet in your in your in your practice, um, or in your in your daily life in terms of schedule, all of these studies show that with just thirty to forty minutes a day of light walking, jogging, and stationary bike riding, that people experienced a profound positive change in their mood, right? So isn't that so interesting? And even, for example, in, in older people, if you walk one mile a day, you cut your risk of dementia by 50%, right? 50%? That's isn't that insane. amazing? So even if you could find at the very least, uh, you know, you in 22 minutes in the afternoon and 22 at night, you at least walk a mile a day. Imagine how much, how much better we could be taking care of our brains and feeling better as a, as a result. Yeah, it's it's so important. I get my best ideas when I'm moving. So I, I don't think I could have written my book without, you know, going for a walk when I felt very stuck. Yeah. So I'm it's it's nice to read your book and go, oh, that's why. Right, right. You know, I knew it worked, but I didn't quite know why. Um so one of the things I like to do uh at the end of every show is just to ask some questions that I ask everybody. Yeah. Um I vary them up show like every show, but one of the things I want to ask you is if you could share something in your life that when it happened, it seemed horrible, but looking back, it was a great blessing. Oh, that's a great question. Well, I, I know exactly what that is. So, um, oof, I always get, I always get emotional. When I talk about this. Um, so when I was 16, my brother was diagnosed with a, a really rare brain disease and he required, um, who I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you just hit the, nail, <laughs> hit the nail on the head. Wow, that did not take much time at all. So he required two brain surgeries, right? So it was really, and he was, you know, he had to be, he had to, you know, he had to be life flighted across the country. There was only one neurosurgeon who would operate on him because they thought that maybe his case was inoperable. And, you know, I spent a lot of time at the, at the University of Michigan Children's Hospital. And, you know, my family were staying in Ronald McDonald houses and, and man, at the time it just felt so hard and it felt, and it felt so, um, it just felt, it just felt like it was never going to get better, you know, and that no good could possibly come out of that. And I have to tell you that that's, that's, that, that there was a little, a little seed, you know, I remember my, my brother's, um, hospital roommate, at the University of Michigan Children's Hospital, oh god, this memory still haunts me to this day. But there was this, um, there was this child who was in a car accident, and the father had been driving. And I saw the father by his child's bed. His son was probably like eight years old or something. And 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 it, those moments planted a seed in me. You know, I had this, I had this seed that got planted in my heart, and that seed grew into something really profound in me, which was my calling. You know, I don't think if I had gone through that, I would have become a therapist. I don't, you know, it's because I, what after, you know, I started to volunteer when I moved to Los Angeles to go to USC when I was 18, I started volunteering at the Ronald McDonald house because I had, my family had actually utilized the Ronald McDonald house. I started volunteering um, with kids with HIV and AIDS. I started volunteering with kids. Uh, lately, I've you know volunteered at a camp for kids who've lost their parents, and and I, I I now can look back on that and I can say, wow, that led to me doing what I do, and now here I am 
an author. And now here I am doing all these things that I love to do. And it came out of something really dark. And I have to tell you, you know, sort of a happy ending too for my mom and my brother. Um, they founded a nonprofit called Aphasia Recovery Connection. So, you know, my brother still can't use his right arm. It's still paralyzed because he had a major stroke as a result of his, his rare brain disease. And, but what's amazing is that, um, uh, you can you can see like their video and, and stuff on, online. They take other stroke survivors on two cruises a year, and they also uh, they also uh, have a and, and we're talking like fifty or sixty people on these cruises wow. every year, and all stroke survivors. And it's it, you know so it's this nonprofit, and they help connect uh, other stroke survivors. And then the other thing that they do is they have. Um, Coming up this month in Las Vegas, they have the Aphasia Recovery Connection Boot Camp. So they help other, they get other um, uh, people with aphasia and stroke survivors together. So here, you know, looking at myself and looking at my mom and my brother, we've all been through something that was just horrific, right? Just totally horrific. And then now, finally, years later, um, really beautiful things have come out of it. So I guess that would just you know, to anybody who's listening, you know, it's like, I, 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 and you're in one of those storms that we've all been through. I, you know, I would also just say that storms pass and, you know, what are, what are the seeds that, are, that could be being planted right now? Uh, so that one day when, when the sun comes back out, what's, what's that sunflower that's going to grow for you? Cause I certainly know that, that the things that I do in my daily life, in my career and my calling, uh, you know, this, this sunflower has, has really bloomed and I'm, I'm and I'm glad it did. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And where, if we want to learn more, if we want to support this amazing cause, where can we go? Yeah, my uh, their website is aphasiarecoveryconnection.com or org, one of those. Okay, okay. An easy Google search yeah, exactly. and we'll find it. Thank you. And then, so another question, this one's a lighter one, but still very important. If you could be any kind of animal, what would you be and why? Oh, a dog. Are you kidding? <laughs> That's like everybody's answer. Dog. I love my dog. I, you know, my dog, my dog is my little Buddha, you know, it's like, oh, you'd, you'd want to be your dog to be specific. Well, I don't want to be a dog so I could be my dog's best friend. You know, my, 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 uh, I'm just so happy to report that my, my little Rocco people, you know, when I, I have been posting a, a lot about Rocco this summer cause he got diagnosed with, um, with cancer and, uh, but you know, the happy ending is he's, he's doing so great and I'm just so happy. And, you know, he's this, you know, it's so funny seeing a, a dog go through that. Of course it's, it's, I hate seeing him in pain, but it, you know, the things that, that dogs I think can teach us, you know, he'd have, uh, you know, he had stage one melanoma and it was just so awful. But the funny thing is, is that like the day we got the, the biopsy back, Rocco didn't change, you know, it's, and obviously we know this. I mean, he's, he's a, he's, he's a dog, not a human. And, and I think both, both the blessing and the curse of the human mind, and maybe we can actually, uh, be a little bit more like the wise Buddhas that, that I think dogs are, is that when that biopsy came back and it said melanoma, Rocco still went on a walk that day, you know, because he was still so immersed in the present moment. Now, that's not to say that we as humans shouldn't be concerned if we get a diagnosis and and we should just, you know, just uh, be uh, be Pollyanna and 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 not uh, pay attention to it. But I also think that too often we as human beings are so concerned with the what if and the worst case scenario and the catastrophic thinking that gets us into, oh my God, I'm going to die. Well, Rocco, Rocco never thought he was 
was going to die. And Rocco's just fine because Rocco. Through the- <laughs> you can hear him. Rocco, Rocco, Rocco actually was Rocco was actually able to 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 get through this without without any uh, without any of that anxiety, and he was able to to really without the and by the way, it probably helped his physical recovery, right? Because we know in terms of stress hormones and and their their association with inflammation that when you're when you're less stressed out about what you're going through it actually helps you to physically heal so i would also assume that rocco was able to physically heal because he didn't have the worst case scenario thinking that we as human beings have that get us into so much trouble yeah such an important point to remember well i love that what a great answer and where can people go to stay connected with you to grab your book to see your great videos oh yeah you can go to my website which is dr mike dow dot com d r m i k e d o w dot com or my Facebook, which is uh, Facebook slash Dr. Mike Dow d r m i k e d o w. Perfect. Well, Mike, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Jessica. 